Whenever we sing songs like that, I just so hope that our hearts and minds are woven to those things and really saying how, expressing how much we do need our God and his great power and mercy. This morning, we're going to hear God's word, and we're going to consider Psalm 112. So if you would please go with me to Psalm 112, we will consider that together. I'm going to read that psalm, and then we will pray, and then open it up. It's a very brief but blessed psalm. Listen as I read God's word. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land, and the generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns upon the, uh, in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and merciful and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously in lens and conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved, and he will be remembered for he will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Verse 10, the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desires of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, as always, when we turn our attention to the hearing of your word, we are, we are privileged people because we know that your word is spiritually discerned. And as those that you have called out of darkness to light, as those who you have given new life to in Christ, those that you have sent your spirit to dwell within and to strengthen us and enable us and indeed to illumine our hearts and minds and give us understanding, we are a blessed people because we know your word is not a, a textbook like the things of this world. It's not simply um, wise instruction or help, self-help. But it is the living and abiding word of God. And we pray that your word, by the power and working of your spirit, would come to us today with great clarity. That it would come with encouragement. That it would come with instruction. That it would come to us uh, just enlivening us to worship and to consider the grace and greatness of the uh, power and mercy that you have shown to us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 um, are psalms that kind of go together, so I'm going to encourage you to go back and read them both together on your own. Uh, Psalm 111 really sets forth things that we are privileged to consider so often in this congregation. How great God is. How wonderful. How changeless. His splendor. His righteousness. His perfections. And, and as you glory in those things, the, the chapter then ends, chapter 111, ends in verse 10 by saying, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And then verse 1 of chapter uh, 112 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. So that, that chapter 11 ends with, after speaking of the greatness of God and his abiding wonder and power, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then chapter 12 takes up that theme, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And we understand that the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Those who do not know God, even those who deny God, they may have a great deal of earthly intelligence and practical, technical capacities. But with regard to the things that are really important and really matter... They don't know the first thing. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The denial of God is the essence of foolishness. Would we agree? Yes, because where do we get that? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so we, we start with this simple understanding. And, and what we really look at in Psalm 112 is there are three primary thoughts that really overflow. And it, it calls the people of God um, to be devoted to delight in his word, and then it speaks of very distinctive characteristics that accompany those who are the children of God. And so as we look at these things, I, I, I'm hoping and praying that God will do a great work within us, and we would understand this. this these two also, chapter 11 and 111 and 112, are the first of what are often called the Hallelujah Psalms. Now, after this, you have to jump over into the 140s to, to continue, about 148, to continue the Hallelujah Psalms. That simply means the Psalms that begin with that phrase, praise the Lord. Or for our dear, more archaic brethren, praise ye the Lord. Which I remember singing that round as, as a child, you know, praise ye the Lord, hallelujah. And it's going all over the place. And it was fun. And, but but there, there is something about that because the nature of this statement, it's not, it is an imperative. It is a command. It's people calling to one another, hey, praise the Lord. Praise him. It's not just a bland statement. May the Lord be praised. Praise the Lord. No, no, no. It, it is a very committed, intentional, mutual call to one another. Brothers, sisters, praise the Lord. Do it. You need to do it. You must do it. That's the sense of an imperative. And that's, that, that's the hallelujah psalms. Because phrases like, that's one of the things that I bemoan in the nature of humanity is that when something becomes commonplace or becomes common language people can start to say you know god willing without really thinking of if god wills but if it works out you know or praise the lord uh, it, not so much here, but there are certain places overseas in my experience that the common greeting, when you greet somebody on Sunday morning, instead of saying, good morning, how you doing? How are things? And uh, how's the family? The first, the way that people shake hands often in India is they shake hands, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And pretty soon, praise the Lord is one word, you know, with, with no spaces in it, praise the Lord, 
And it's a great thing to say, and it's a great thing to think of, but at a certain point, it can just be the mind is saying, hello, but the mouth is saying, praise the Lord. You know? Or generally, we're just saying the words, hallelujah, not having a clue what's going on there, was well, that is a reference to, to praise the, the Yah is a reference to Yahweh, praise the Lord. So whenever you say hallelujah, praise you the Lord, they were actually singing the same thing in different languages. Praise you the Lord, hallelujah, no English, no Hebrew, no English, no Hebrew. That's the way that the round was going, though we didn't maybe know it. Um, but when we, so when we take this up, it's telling us to praise the Lord. And what I like about this in this particular psalm and why we're taking it up today, it's going to speak about things that characterize the godly man and the godly woman. So if there is any godliness in you and me, if we fear the Lord, if we delight in his commandments, if we are distinguished by the characteristics in here that we'll look at, then you know what we should do? Throw a party for ourselves. Wrong. Boast in ourselves. Wrong. Give ourselves best Christian in the city mugs. Wrong again. What should we be doing? Are you saying that he gets the credit for any good that is in me? Are you saying all that I am, I am by the grace of God? All the, all the hope in which I stand, the salvation that's mine, the changes I've made, that's all glory to God, power from God, the working and grace of God? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, if it, if it wasn't clear, that is what I'm saying. And that is, in a strong sense, even what the psalmist here is saying. As he's going to speak of these wonderful characteristics, he doesn't say, praise ye the congregation. Praise ye the righteous man. No, praise ye the Lord. And then it speaks of these blessed characteristics that the Lord himself has wrought, which is an old way of saying brought and worked within a man. The first thing I want us to take notice of, and these are simple and clear and wonderful things, the first thing about this, the godly man, by the grace of God, it is an individual who is rightly devoted now, one of, the, one of the reasons, and I think one of the reasons why the Scripture gives these kinds of things, as it reminds us of these things, sometimes we're able to remember times and seasons where these things were a little bit more vibrant than possibly they might be right now. And it's not so that we can simply look back, as some of us may remember it from reading the early part of Revelation, even if you're doing all these things well, I have this one thing against you. You have left your first love. Repent and do the works that you did at first. And so these things, are they're not for judgment. They are descriptions of the grace of God. And if in any element we sense a diminishing from days gone by, it's not for bemoaning, is it? It's for calling out to him, 
pleading with him and committing ourselves by his grace to a recovery of these things that bring him pleasure and glory. So let's look at this. Rightly devoted. It says this, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man or the one who fears the Lord. I'm just going to take this up by way of a simple uh, overview. The idea of fear in the scriptures is, is not simply standing there trembling and shaking. It's not that every time you hear about God that you would fear and raise your hands and cower. No, 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 no. Uh, I mean, the one who is actively living in sin and defiance, that would be a right response. But uh, even the godly are called to live in or walk in fear. Actually, in 2 Corinthians, for the New Testament believer, it says this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. Knowing the fear of the Lord. And it's important to think of this because it's an in, there's an interesting notion in the idea of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it also tells us this in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 10. Okay, It's speaking up through Moses to the children of Israel. Speaking of how when God came at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, on that day. You stood before the Lord God at Mount Horeb, and the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me. Okay, so that, you, that should give you a, just a heads up. The same thing if I was to read from Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23. It ends by say, speaking of, gather all of the people who dwell there, uh, the firstborn of your flock and your herd, I'm going to have you do all of these things at the place that I choose, the end of chapter 14, verse 23, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So the fear of God that the scriptures are referring to is something that is learned. See, our normal, ordinary human fear, do we have to teach that to people? You know? Right now, you know, I'm going to, you know, do you, do you tell your, your, your child, okay, I'm going to go in the other room. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dress up in a, in a hideous clown mask. And when I jump out in front of you, you're supposed to be scared. So your heart should flutter and this and that should happen. And because that's the right response to this kind of a thing. So I want you to learn what it is to be afraid. Do we do that? We don't have to teach children to be afraid. Sometimes all you got to do is say goodnight and turn off the light. And that's enough. You haven't done any more. What are you afraid of? The dark. All right. You can wave your hands in the dark. The dark's never going to hurt you. It's, never gonna, it's just no light there. So you don't have to teach ordinary human fear, do you? It comes very naturally. Uh, you know, no, no one has to tell you, you need to fear this or you need to fear that. It simply comes. But with regard to the fear of the Lord, there's something more going on there that requires or that involves learning. And that's, that's important to know. So the fear of the Lord, the helpful thing about that idea is this, because the tendency to to, to take a biblical concept 
and link it to our present understanding of words and experiences. That's a dangerous idea. This is speaking of, and, and it's, it's a broader word, and, and I'll give you four simple senses, you know. Again, I'm going to give these by way of, by way of teaching. They can, they can easily and wonderfully be established by the scriptures, and I may allude to some to help us. The first sense of a rightly devoted person in this passage, rightly devoted, that is, the man who fears the Lord, is that he conducts himself, his general approach to living, is he lives before the face of God with what I would call a reverential awe. That he is amazing. He is powerful. He, he is seeing everything. He is with me. There is just this sense of, of reverential awe. Um, and, and you know, a misplaced reverential awe, sometimes men will have it for other men. I mean, there would be circumstances that I'm aware of where, where some individual might get opportunities in their maybe their their pastor or something that they've put on a pedestal and as they go to speak to him you know mouth gets caught and dry chin starts to quiver and what's going on there are you feeling okay well they're, they're just um the, the, at that point what they're thinking is i want to make sure that i i want to say i say my words right i want to make sure i don't misrepresent anything there's just this extreme hyper caution that overwhelms that particular person we're not all wired that way but we may be aware of those kind of things well there there, there ought to be that sense in us a reverential awe I, I want to be cautious prudent careful in how I engage my God now you see here's the difference Everything that we do in life is, in a sense, engaging with him. Because every piece of thing that we touch and interact with, who created that? Every person we converse with, who has given them life and breath? So it, it's, not, it's not like our other earthly experiences of reverential awe that will be in that moment of, of personal interaction and dialogue. There's never a, part, a moment that we're apart from God. There's never a thing that we do that is outside of His observance and awareness. You know, it would kind of be... Um, well, I mean, you, you, you've all seen these kinds of things, and we would hope this would not happen. It's not the ideal choice for a parent. Um, but we've all seen those kind of things where the child is getting ready to go and do something that he's not supposed to do. I'm sure you've all seen this. Even those who don't have children, you might remember doing this. And the child begins to go over there, knows it's a forbidden thing. They might take a peek at dad to see if he's looking. And strangely enough, sometimes on those occasions, you get to see the rebelliousness and depravity that's even in a little kid. Don't go. Stop. I mean, he may slow down a little bit and look, but sometimes you just keep going. Have you seen it? Have you experienced it? 
yeah. And as a, and, you know, and, and as a dad, you're like, oh. Uh, but you don't want that, that child to feel only terror from you. You want him to feel love as well. And, and you're longing for, as he's looking at you as, and stepping away, you're longing for that moment where what? He would stop. And instead of going that way, he would come to you. Right? And that's, that's the kind of thing where we would so want our children to have that appreciation and respect that, that when they know, we would prefer for them to do it even when they know they're not being watched, but most extraordinarily when they're being watched and eye contact has been made, that they would turn to us rather than that object. Now, the, with, again, I take that analogy back to God. At what point is he not watching? <laughs> At what point are his eyes off of us? At what point can we look, wait for him to look away so that we can quickly do it and jump back? That's not going to happen. And so uh, a rightly devoted person has this, this reverential awe, and, and this is going to affect some of the things later that we see as the distinctives. Some of the decisions, some of their actions, it's going to be done. They really live their life that they would please him in all things. That they would give him glory in all things. Okay, So a reverential awe, really a humble amazement. The second thing that you see in terms of a fear of the Lord in the scripture is it's not only a reference to reverential awe, it is a reference to righteous actions. Okay? In Psalm 128 verse 1 it says this, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Now, in poetic parallelism, it expands the idea of fears the Lord. Blesses the one who fears the Lord, who walks to in his ways. So what is an expression of fearing the Lord? Walking in his ways. So it's an attitude towards him, but not just an attitude. You know, as much as we may appreciate from our children an attitude of respect and love and awe, if it doesn't also translate into obedience, something's missing. And we know it needs to go further than that to not only love and respect me as a father, but love and respect me to the extent that you listen and do what I say. So the fear of the Lord speaks also of righteous activity. The fear of the Lord, I guess we'll, we'll only look at three really, three primary ones. And the, the third one is religious activity. Um, it was uh, oftentimes regarding the, the gathered groups, the fear of the Lord in community would be an expression of worship. So if we were to look at the idea, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, one who ha is rightly devoted with a reverential awe towards God, with, that follows reverential awe with righteous acts, and follows righteous acts with religious activity. They're involved in the community of the saints. The scripture said this in Acts chapter 9 verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I mean that's a, I, I always love when the scriptures put together things that nobody puts together. You know. Fear usually comes first, and somebody who's in fear, you might come and comfort them. But the scriptures have those things living together in harmonious concert. 
walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So the comfort of the Spirit doesn't remove that kind of fear that is a right attitude towards God, that follows with right acts towards God, that follows with a commitment to the things that God has called his people to do jointly. So there is an attitude towards him uh, doing the things individually that he's called me to do, participating in the things corporately that he's called me to do. Blessed is that man. That is a right devotion. The second thing that we see in this passage, not only do we see that a godly man or woman is rightly devoted, we see that they are richly delighted. Richly delighted in God's word. Now that's one of the, re one of the things we sang, a song we sang this morning. There was a lyric line in there that somebody put that said, your word never fails. Love it so much, never gets old to me. Now for the believer, that's what happens. The, the word of God, it is a living word. It doesn't get old. It doesn't get boring. And the way that the scriptures uh, kind of trace that out, uh, let, me, let me give you four thoughts of that related to uh, uh, this rich delight in the word of God, and then we'll survey some of the Psalms and how it describes it. First of all, they delight in hearing the scriptures, hearing the word of God. This is the way it says, who greatly delights in his commandments. That's the end of verse uh, 1. They delight in hearing them. They delight in studying them, con studying, considering, meditating on them. They delight in doing them, and they delight in declaring them. So again, those four ideas of those who truly delight in the word of God, they delight in hearing them. They delight in meditating them and considering uh, them. They delight in doing them, and they delight in declaring them. These are the kind of things that you see. And, and the way that the scriptures put it, it, it's very strong. And I hope that we, we get this. Um, it, he's, the way he said it here is, they greatly, who greatly delights in his commandments. Now, commandments is a word in the scripture that oftentimes is a reference to the whole of scriptures and not exclusively to commands because the, the poetry of Psalms will say commands, statutes, law, precepts. I mean, it has a wonderful array of words that it, that it brings into effect to, to refer to the word of God. But again, it's important for us to note this. In the days of this psalm, the majority of the word that they had in their hand was literally commandments. Now, now, now note this. What do we have? Oh my, far more. We have the revelation of Christ. We have the riches of the glorious gospel made known to us. The promises of eternity and the surety of forgiveness of sin. The removal of all of that sacrificial system and the fullness of the sufficiency of Christ. Oh! And yet listen. It says they delight in the commandments. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Yeah, that's great. I mean, doesn't it seem a little odd? And you shall. I mean, it doesn't seem, at least to our earthly sense, all that delightful, a bunch of do's and don'ts. 
But there is a sense that to the godly man and woman, there is delight in that. In not doing these things. God is pleased and glorified. In doing these things, God is pleased and glorified. And so in, in having clear and, and knowable and practical ways that I can please and bring glory to my God. And practical ways that I can avoid bringing shame and dishonor and profaning his name. That's wonderful. And delighting even in those commandments. Now, listen. You read through the commandments. You read them a second time. You read them a fifth time. At what point are you saying, Oh, that's new. Might not happen all the time. It might all become pretty familiar. But listen, familiarity does not diminish delight. It doesn't. I mean, it, it, it may in terms of things of the world, but it doesn't. Listen to, way, listen to this survey of Psalms that put the, puts these pieces together for us to some extent. In, in Psalm 1 verse 2, it says this. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Which is a little bit different than 15 minutes in the morning. Or, or whatever pattern someone has developed. Now, again, this isn't for some sort of legalistic set aside, you know, this much time every day from this hour to this hour and make sure you get into your sweet hour of prayer and make sure, you know, no, no, no this isn't trying to promote legalism. This, this isn't someone who's acting on it legalistically. This is a love and delight. And so... He loves and delights in God's word. So you know what he does? All the time he finds his mind drifting back to what? God's word. It's, the example that I, that I often give, it's not something that generally someone would have to force themselves to do. Many who, who have been young and, at, and maybe it could happen, and older too, in the throes of... Um, Affection and concern. I, uh, I remember uh, in the old days, no one would have to come to me, nor do they now, and, and say, uh, have you thought about Jemima today? They wouldn't have to do that because what would happen? And I would think about her. And I'd be at work and if the phone would ring, I'm hoping that's her. Take a little break here. No one had to do that. What would happen is my thoughts would often drift back to a particular person because my affection was there. Didn't need any instruction. Uh, it wouldn't be like, oh, wow, a month has gone by and I didn't even think about. No, it would be very natural uh, for rarely an hour to go by unless overly occupied without the mind somehow Drifting back with some degree of thought of that person. We all, we all have some sense uh, of that. If we love and delight in God's word in that way, would it not be 
Not in, you know, not merely in an official, deliberate way, but I just love it. You know, those, when I was reading this morning, my mind just keeps going back to that because, and that just challenged me. And that, you know, that just comforted me. You know, however, the effect of that, that our minds and hearts are just going back to that. Because listen to what it says also in Psalm 119, verse 48. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. You know, the, the, the lift up your hands is a sense of, uh, of praise and adoration, which I love. Why do people praise and adore the word? Because it is in that that God has made himself known. It is in that that he's made his will known. It's not that literally someone's going to put their Bible there, although there are groups that will put books or other items before people and have them lift their hands to it. This is, again, in the poetic language of it. This, this is God speaking. And in response to God speaking, I lift my hands in worship. I love it. Look what it says in Psalm 119, 103. 103. How sweet are your words to my, my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Um would say this further in verse uh, 119.72. Your law, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Better than gold, yea, much fine gold. So the scriptures say that over and over again. And so it gives these examples of things that people ordinarily treasure and value. You know, it gives the examples of love. People treasure and value gold and silver, much gold and silver, much fine gold. And for in those days, one of the sweetest, most delicious delicacies that people would love and long for was honey. They loved that. And so the, the scripture, it, it's giving those kinds of examples. Even as we were considering this morning, uh, the, the child of God it, it longs for the spiritual word of God, the spiritual milk, like a newborn babe. Newborn babes, much to the chagrin at times of mama and daddy, nobody has to tell them, we want you to be hungry every two to three hours. No, if we could tell them, we would say, yeah, let's put it off. Every eight hours would be better because then you get a chance to sleep. But what happens? A child is, yeah, and how hungry are they? Do they make it known? Are they taking, no, you can't eat right now for an answer? They are demanding it, you know, with the sweetest song. They, they make it known, I want some food now. And that's how the children of God are. And since I, you know, so that when we begin to picture this, um, like the sweetness of honey, like, like that, I mean, it would be kind of like this idea, um, oh, yeah, I've heard that verse before. Yeah, I've already studied that verse before. Yeah, I've already considered it before. Nah. Oh, yeah, that dessert. Oh, that dessert is so good. I remember I had it once back in 1975. It was good. Well, do you want some now? No, but it was so good in 1975. Does that even make sense? If it was so good, what are you going to do? The tendency is every time that thing is available, I'm taking it. Of course, some of us might say this. Well, what if we have uh, 
unlike the practical things in the world, the word you're not going to, as someone indwelt with the Spirit, have an allergy to it. To where, oh, that's so good, but the byproduct is not so good. That's not going to happen with the Word of God, is it? You're going to take that in, and you are going to love it. And you are going to delight in it. And so when it comes around, you know, what often happens in my home, it, when it's coming around to, uh, to my birthday, it was a given this is the dessert that's going to be prepared on Jason's birthday because he likes this one. And generally, I kind of looked forward to it. It wasn't like, yeah, I already had that every year for so many years. No, even I'll be honest. I get up in the morning. I have my cup of coffee. And I like it. Every morning, that first sip, to me, I'm just like, mmm. I don't say to myself, I've had coffee two, three times a day for the last 40-some years. I mean, what in the world? I'm not, here it is again. Oh, boy, here's some coffee again. Let me go ahead and force it down. No. Uh, what do I? I do it intentionally, delightfully, savoringly. I do it. Uh, the same thing, when we take up God's word, is, is that our sense? Oh boy, I've got to, I've committed to do my morning devotion. Let me go ahead and do it. Is that, or is it, oh yeah, yeah, here we go. Yeah, I like this. Do you do that? I mean, it, that should be our heart, shouldn't it, to some extent? Is it always? No, and no, and there will be times that I will have some illness or something and uh and the scent of coffee that i otherwise adore not so much today it's just kind of and there may be times where maybe my heart and mind and life have drifted to a certain degree and and i'm not as i ought to be and so that that hunger and delight is not there and it's kind of like Nah, let's just keep that away from me. Because you know what it does come with? Conviction. Correction. The Word of God is like, get ready for it, a two-edged sword. You know? It's not necessarily like a lollipop, right? Or, or, or like a, a, a pillow. The, the, the word of God doesn't come to engage in a pillow fight with you. It comes like a two-edged sword, and that can cut deep. Divide the joints and the marrow, but the children of God say, it's a good thing. You know, It's like that person who, who enjoys and has given themselves two forms of exercise that after the fact, when their body's sore, they're like, yeah like it. I like it when my body's sore because I know I've made progress. I know that I've, I know that the, the workout was of some effect because I, I feel it. You know, that's how we want to be. The taking in of God's word. Oh boy, it was of some effect because I feel it. And sometimes it's comforting. Sometimes it's enriching. Sometimes it is confronting. But we want it all because we need it all. Moving on, not only do we richly delight in God's word and it, that it never gets old, and I've, there's so many verses that attend to that, but it all, I will just say this, there is a warning in Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, verse 69 and 70, it gives the opposite of those who delight in God's word. It says, the insolent, 
The psalmist says, smear me with lies, but my whole heart keeps your precepts. The, the phrase, the, the word there for insolent is actually uh, more literally a word for someone who is proud. And that, that word for pride, that word for proud it shows itself in three different ways. That is in a, in a rebellious pride, I'll do my way. I'll do what I want. Secondly, in, in a presumption of their favor and position. And thirdly, in a willful neglect and disobedience. That's that word that's translated insolent. It's someone who, who pridefully says, you know what, I prefer things my way. Who presumptuously says, it's okay, I'm a favored person. Who rebelliously says, yeah, I don't care what God wants. I want to do it my way. Well, this, the, the, when that spirit takes over someone, look what it says in verse 70. 70. Now, it's an unpleasant verse when you read it, but it's the word of God, so you got to take that. It says, their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. You know, they hear your word, eh, means nothing to them. And actually, it... it the translators have always have struggled with this because maybe it is an idiom of sorts. But it, 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 the word there is actually not unfeeling. It carries, it, it carried that 